right, we're back here on the main course, broadcasting live from beautiful Roberto's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm Mike Edison here with our host, Patrick Martins, and our guest, Shauna Pacifico, Aaron Fairbanks. And uh, let's give a big shout-out to our sponsor today, White Oak Pastures, whose cows are as nice as can be. Please visit them at whiteoakpastures.com. Yeah, Will Harris is an amazing rancher. So, Mike, tell us, what have you been up to this week? What have I been up to? It's been a good week for wrestling at the Elks Lodge in Queens Boulevard. And um, last night I was at the Mostly Mozart Festival at Lincoln Center. It's been a week of high culture and low culture. And hopefully later this afternoon we're going to go check out Public Enemy in Central Park to get get all that Mozart out of my head. Well, what do you think? You couldn't have that concert 20 years ago, no. a free public enemy concert. No. Times have changed. Yeah, for sure. So that's interesting. A high brow, low brow. I mean, back 40 is the low brow version of Savoy, right? Um, I guess you could say that. It's I the toned down version a bit, um, but still offering the same high brow food. I wouldn't call back 40 low brow. Well, compared to Savoy, I mean, also high brow, low brow culture like Shakespeare. Uh, troops used to go around the American West, and that was "quote unquote" lowbrow. Like you would go to a, a saloon and see a you know a British troop perform Shakespeare. That was lowbrow. Then that became highbrow, and now all of a sudden, if you go to see Shakespeare, you have to be. Are you ready to be highbrow, Shana? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was born highbrow. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no, I uh, start in the gutter. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> I work my way down from there. <laughs> but uh, you know, the funny thing about Public Enemy. I mean, years ago, I mean, they were you know fairly dangerous American rock and roll band. I mean, really. Uh, they were like the next MC5, and now it's like a reality star clown huh. and Chuck D, whose uh, anger may or may not be relevant anymore. I guess we'll find out today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, we're talking about, we're looking in the uh, New York Post today. Here's yeah. Spinning of New York as uh, always my main source of inspiration and material uh, for this show. And the, um, the poll here today is, what drives New Yorkers up a wall? And uh, dawdling tourists top the list. Really? People who walk slow, right? Yeah. So um, what we're talking about before is, what annoys you guys in the restaurant? What are the biggest customer faux pas? What are the gripes that you have working at a restaurant with these awful people who um, actually keep us in business? Now, you <laughs> deliver to a lot of restaurants, because most recently you were with Flying Pig Farm, right? And yep. you would make help them make deliveries of their amazing heritage rare stock of uh, pig breeds to restaurants and you've been in the restaurant industry for years so you're going to give us an interesting lens into this question oh dogs looking like (laughs) (laughs) we have Um, two dogs in studio with us um i i think that the my biggest gripe with customers are people that um are yelpers I, I, mean the people I, who like uh, post on Yelp. Yeah, I makes me want to punch him in the face. Why? <laughs> well, because if what I feel like Yelp? I feel Yelp like throw down. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if you have a problem with something at the restaurant, I think it's best to tell somebody at the restaurant because I'm pretty sure we're gonna do something to make you happy or to fix the problem. But for you to walk out unhappy and um, unsatisfied and probably not fool because you probably didn't want to eat everything or you soured because your waiter was rude or whatever um, and not giving us the chance to fix that and so then they go on Yelp and then they bitch uh, up they a storm. want to be treated badly because it's easier and to then, write a But yeah, but it's just like, yelp. if you say something there, you're just like, this wasn't, you know, this fish is overcooked or this fish is too salty or this doesn't taste right. Um, then most likely, and most good restaurants in New York City, they're going to fix it and they're going to fix it with a smile and, and graciously, you know, try to make your day better. But 
I think that's my biggest uh, no one listens to Yelp and any oh, of those. Oh, I think I think like one percent of the world population, which is everyone who owns a restaurant and plus some other people. I think San Francisco. San Francisco is big on Yelp. If you're in San Francisco, you're hanging out. People are like, check Yelp, check Yelp. But who? Like a small percentage of that city. That city constitutes black people, Asian people, old people, young people. Yeah. Food no, I didn't guys. see any people that looked like that. Hey, <laughs> So if you look up Roberta's on Yelp, there's a little tidbit about the radio station in the back being incredibly VIP. Oh, incredibly that's VIP. right. Hells like, yeah. That, that <laughs> How did I get in? <laughs> let me tell you, I think Yelp is as important as man-on-the-street interviews. Like, WPIX is like, what do you think about the mosque? They'll have experts talk about it. That's interesting. Then they'll just go to some dude well, down the street, and they're like, what do you think about it? I find that not very interesting because... That person might not be an expert. He might have literally just been walking by, and they're like, "What do you think?" That doesn't constitute what people think. It well, does, it, I feel like it doesn't. Bo- but with all you know, all these bloggers and everybody's a food critic now, and now you can go somewhere and you can put your opinion out there. Like people, like some people listen, um, and you, you know, if you have a lot of bad negative reviews, you know, you definitely start thinking about it. And also, I mean, I don't think. A lot of them might be valid. Like, oh, my waiter was rude and made us feel uncomfortable or didn't properly tell us how to order. And those are, those are, I feel like those are valid points, but it's better to be told to the restaurant than to be on, you know, out on, on the internet world. Well, Yelp empowers morons. Yeah. <laughs> the internet <laughs> empowers idiots. Yes. Um, you know, I know it's supposed to be very democratic and it's supposed to, um, you know, ease the, uh, the barrier of entry so it's not just the anointed few who get to write about these things, but unfortunately, you have a lot of, you know, meatheads out there writing about things of which they <laughs> know nothing. Well, I find And it's it, hard to, you know, filter the white noise from the people who actually know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. I mean, equally absurd is the, you know, a, a hidden food critic that no one knows what he looks like and there's some, like, photocopied picture of him at some party that they think is what he looks like and that that guy can make or break a restaurant. I mean, that's equally absurd. But that's an old tradition. I mean, that's always been the case where you shouldn't know when a food critic is coming in because the critic shouldn't be receiving any special attention. I mean, the best food critics in America were unknown, you know. But take- those days are over. Now, Bruni was probably the last one because now everyone knows what Sam Sifton looks like and everyone knows what everyone looks like. I think they were trying to find somebody high-profile enough to to write the, to write this. To to write write the, the reviews um, to replace Bruni, and it just happened to be somebody who... You know, especially with Google Image, you can Google Image anybody. Yeah. And you can't, I mean, they, they can't take those pictures off um, the internet. So, yeah. The, I mean, that age of being completely unknown. unknown. Is, the digital slime trails, <laughs> I like to call it. Yeah, we're all. It's funny because I'll Google Image back 40 and I, like some strange pictures of me, like somebody took a photo of me in the restaurant pop up and I'm on like somebody's Flickr account. And I'm just like, the hell is this yeah <laughs> you know before when we were getting ready uh our incredibly vip team of uh, radio experts here <laughs> we were talking about what annoys people in, in restaurants and uh aaron you were talking about people coming to the restaurant with cards printed about what they won't eat yeah i think people who have a lot of um <laughs> i would say my big my biggest pet peeve would be people with false food allergies i mean it's okay if you don't like something like that's cool just say you don't like it but to tell me that you're allergic to onions you know, onions or <laughs> salt or you know, it's just just not the case. And we would have, I would have. It's, it's not, not the case. You're not allergic. Well, no, to it. but I mean, there's some things. It's just like, yeah. well, if somebody says they're allergic to onions, but then they order another dish with chive dressing, and you're like, well, that's an onion, you idiot. That's, like, <laughs> like so you're allergic. To, like, there's a whole thing. You know, garlic f- falls into that family, so you can't be allergic 
to onion and then order something else that has onion in it. Now, let me ask you, is there off of your menu and other people's menus, are there smart orders? Like, do you get an order from uh, a, a table and you say, ah, interesting, they hit the special oh, dishes, ab- or oh, this absolutely. guy ordered I mean, raw. I, I, uh, sometimes certain orders come to the kitchen and, I'll, and I ask the manager to go, like, check them out because I'm like, either they're like a food critic or they're foodies or they're in the restaurant business. And how? What what about that order makes that <clears throat> um, Excessive ordering <laughs> of, <laughs> of, like, the best things on the menu. Um, you know, like, it's a three-top and then they order, like, four appetizers and three, you know, four entrees. And right. They Want it. It's just like that, or you know, wanting to try many different things um, is a telltale sign for me. Well, that um, in the mix, I think I know. Like when we go out to eat, you can you look at a menu and you can tell like what are the love what where the love is at in yeah. the menu, and then like, you yeah. can also tell what the, where the fillers are. You know, there's every menu's got fillers of just to fill space and totally. Um, so you're uh, Shannon Pacifico, you're Aaron Fairbanks, Mike Edison, Patrick Martins. We're going to have uh, Jeff Mosheron, who's the chef of uh, Robert Mondavi Winery, in a few minutes, and uh, we're also going to have uh, he was also the chef of Copia. The American Center of Wine, Food, and the Arts, which was at the time the only food museum. They built it pretty badly, and they had a lot of bureaucracy, and so it shut down. But uh, it was a really cool place. If uh, Anyway, so Jeff has been around a lot of Napa Valley institutions, so he'll be on. Um, what other things at restaurants don't you like? What about people who don't like their table and, you know... Well, I don't deal with that. That's well, I can tell you, just as a customer, the pet peeve, the table's wobbly. I mean, it was wobbly before I got there. <laughs> it was probably wobbly all day. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a pack of matches somewhere in the place to fix it. Yeah. How come it's my table? No, that has no to more be matches. Fixed? We're a smoke-free that, country. That's true. <laughs> that's true. I know. Sorry, and, we okay, can't fix wobbly and, tables and, and, pe- and pet peeve number two, no matches at the bar. <laughs> no matches at the bar. Um, I feel um, people that send back their dish and be like, uh, I don't like this. I mean, it's fine, but I just, it's, I just don't like it. Like, well, why'd you order it? Yeah, <laughs> you what ordered do you, the lamb. What do you do? This happened last yesterday, last on a Friday night. They ordered the lamb sausage. She didn't even take a bite. <laughs> she didn't even take a bite. She like cut the sausage and was like, "Hmm." Do you this credit isn't for her? Me. What do you say? Yeah, you don't you like to. it. You don't like it. I'm like, you know. But whatever. you don't charge. Them. I mean, but what happens is, what? Yeah. No, we don't charge them. But what happens is, I have to taste a bunch of food. From that somebody else ate off of some stranger because I need to test. Like if somebody t- sent something back that they did eat and they're like, "Oh, it's too salty" or "It just doesn't taste right," I have to eat after have people. Have you ever I don't gotten know. sick and suspected it's from no. one of those tastes? No. Because one of the things I would like to talk about today uh, is outdated diseases like <laughs> rickets and trench foot I'm, and the plague. I, I'm too young for that. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what those are. Yeah, polio never made that comeback, and uh, SARS, never, SARS never became that trendy disease. We're all looking forward to. Well, how, uh, how do we get from restaurants to, to outdated diseases, yeah. Patrick? Well, she was talking about eating from other <laughs> people's plates. plates to determine if what they said had any merit. Yeah, like if somebody says something salty, I have to taste it because I have to a reprimand my cooks or b be like, no, it's fine. The person's crazy, or they're just salt sensitive. So or when you sensitive. when we send out. The replacement dish, you just don't put any salt in it. Yeah, that's true. There is a certain, although what you do say about people wanting to be difficult, like it is their, uh, that's when they think they're, hey, I'm at a restaurant, I'm spending $150. I want this table. I'm annoyed at that waitress. And then you're going to have the worst experience because we talk- people don't like you. 
But right don't you do that bat. every time you come to Back 40? No. Uh, <laughs> well, he's he's a Heritage Mark. Radio VIP. <laughs> yeah, he well, Heritage Radio, I mean, one he's thing He's the only is, person that gets a reservation. <laughs> back 40 that. is a hard thing because uh, Back 40 will always say yes. They'll be like, come on in. We'll yeah. figure it out. And I'm like, you could have also told me that it will be an hour's wait. I yeah. mean, you know what I mean? Sometimes they're too nice. They want to be good, whereas I could have benefited maybe more from an upfront, like, oh, we'll stop by for dessert at 11 or something yeah. versus staying oh, no. Well, there, I mean, there's, I mean, yeah, but if you're walking in on a Friday night at eight o'clock, there's going to be a wait. Yeah. Because we to. don't, because we don't take reservations and we don't hold tables for people. Not just, even for just, Pietro? For PH? No. Pietro well, Hoffman, yeah. Oh, no. PH. I mean, I mean, Jerry, the, the, the other owner who works the doors on the weekends will tell Jerry, will tell Peter, he's like, all right, you got to be done. Get out. Because there's somebody. Oh, somebody right. needs that table. Somebody needs that table. I us say, there's like one other, like, pet peeve is that people want to have taste you know they want they and they don't know you know they want to be told by the critics by the bloggers by the yelpers like what's good what to like and I remember I was, when I was cooking at Savoy we had the cassoulet on the menu and this was like five years ago and you know before everyone in the city was doing cassoulet and it was a, it was delicious you know but we sold two three a night and then we got picked up by like Bruni did a little spot or Florence did a little spot and then the next day it was like cassoulet like flying out the door and it was just as good the day before you know people just need to be they're like tell me what to eat tell me how to order like tell me what's good they're not coming in i feel like oftentimes people aren't coming in for like to experience the place they're they're coming in to check it off some kind of list of like been been there there. done that oh i've had that i'm in you know i've tasted that but it's not about kind of just getting down and like having that kind of luscious food people need to be educated people need and they come in very uncomfortable i see tons of people that are just very uncomfortable at the hostess desk and they're not reacting as i would perceive them to normally react to a simple question and do you want to sit here no and they're asking everybody some people don't know how to use a restaurant yeah some people just aren't good at the experience we all have friends you know like that who come in and they look at the menu and they invariably order you know the chicken or the worst the worst thing the filler you know but i was like and they're not there for the the real experience we're talking about last week a little bit that um something Joe Bastianich told me he said New York has a culture where the people understand that the customer isn't always right which isn't what you would you know uh, intuitively think you know in a, in a uh, place where you know everybody is sort of in a rush and knows what they want and very educated very educated food culture in every other way but people know to bind the experience and let the restaurant lead them you know it's All not it's not so much a service industry where I want this I want this I want this you let the restaurant tell you what you should have and the experience is going to open up and be more though, beneficial a, a restaurant can be too you know, Franny's, when it very first opened, I felt like, you know, I would be mistreated if I wasn't playing by a rule. Yeah. You know, Mama Fuko, I mean, they just opened a place on the Upper East Side or, you know, Midtown, Ma Pesh, filled with old people and you can't call. There's no phone number. Like, that makes no <laughs> sense to me. Like, that's too much the restaurant saying, this is our style and, you know, if they need more But pe- it's successful. I mean, it hasn't really backfired. I mean, Co hasn't really backfired. I mean, well, it's, Mapesh, impos- it's impossible to get into Co. I'm sure Mapesh could use, uh, you know, a few more people coming in there. I mean, it, it wouldn't oh, hurt them. That, yeah, that space is huge. I used to work there when it was town. They um, could use a phone number. I'm- <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. You can, I mean, my mom could never go there because she's not going to send but but maybe this shouldn't be easy for everybody maybe that's the you know the barrier of entry that's going to weed out the rubes and the marks and the people who are really going to enjoy the experience but i feel like it's also a way to save money right so they don't don't have no (laughs) you don't have to hire someone to answer the phone i mean that's a huge cost like at like at co Co, they don't have to hire somebody to take reservations and you know work it all out and Mm -hmm. um so that's you know 
um, that's what a couple thousand a month maybe um, yeah, I mean, is it? I mean, I don't know. Anyway, no, I think sometimes they make it. If I wanted to weed out people, I wouldn't be like you have to have email. I mean, that's not the type of person I'm. You know, I, well, you have to have you have to have internet to get into the crab boils well, at back forty. You know what? We'll right. take your call, but only if you're calling from a landline. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <Who has landline? laughs> you know, we pay a high premium to be elitists here. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, why don't we take a break and uh, we're going to come back. Uh, we're going to do uh, more segments. I wanted to talk about double decker buses. I think they really hurt the flow. <laughs> and, and double decker buses and trench foot. We'll be right back. <laughs> At the main course, uh, we're with Shana Pacifico from Back Forty, Aaron Fairbanks of Where Aaron Fairbanks right Incorporated, <laughs> Mike Edison, uh, former editor of uh, many, many, many seminal <laughs> magazines in American history, and me, Patrick Martins. We're sponsored by White Oak Pastors, and uh, we're engineered and uh, produced by Jack and uh, Nat in the back. Cool. Yeah, that's. Uh, and we're at Done all the homework. We're at Roberta's, 261 Moore Street. It's a little overcast, but uh, we have the beautiful Brooklyn Grange Farmer's Market. So oh, it's so beautiful. Vegetables. We walked by, yeah. Yeah, very, very nice setup that they have there. Uh, very pretty display. Well, more peppies. Just the, uh, I don't think the double-decker buses, which are everywhere. They have a Brooklyn version, the Queens version, the downtown version. They're not driven by good drivers. They're particularly bad, and they try to stay true to the tourists by driving like two miles an hour over the Brooklyn well, What I like Bridge. to do is when I see one of these tourist double-decker buses go by, I like to give them the finger. Yeah. Because, because to me, that's a real taste in New York. I mean, it's, yes. a, little, it's a little extra added value. I for ride them. my horn. <laughs> I, just, I just lift my shirt up. Do you? Like, Welcome to New York. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really think about double decker buses I, doesn't bother you you don't no. drive do you i uh i would if i had a car but uh. no but i you know i ride my bike everywhere and it's like double decker buses regular buses i mean they just do it they'll pull right into you yeah, they'll, they yeah. don't yeah they'll they'll scoot well, what you off the, the road. Post and you know what you know what i do i get the hell out of the way <laughs> oh you better believe i do <laughs> 
So the post said people who block subway doors, 24%. Slow walking tourists, 20.9%. Cab drivers on cell phones, 12.5%. Very annoying. What? Yeah, it's a leader. That that, that annoys me, I gotta say. Sure, guys, how good a job can he be doing for me if he's like blathering away, having a conversation with someone else while he's driving his cab? I'm mean to cab drivers. That's not fair. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I should be nicer to them. But, like, that doesn't bother me if they're on the phone. As long as they're driving good. I can drive good talking, you know? I mean, I have to get an $80 ticket because I'm, I'm talking more, on the phone. I mean, I, I, I more prefer cab drivers um, that shower. Shower. Uh, ones that oh, don't shower. <laughs> drivers who block the box. I would put that very high up. The One guy one? can block Gridlock. the entire avenue. For the avenue. entire avenue. Especially if you're driving a box truck around the city. You know? Like, <laughs> I need to deliver space. some pigs. Yeah. Ooh, look at this. 6.2% of New Yorkers don't like hipsters. I don't even know what that means anymore. Well, they don't say. like you, Wait, Mike. Oh, Sean. <laughs> let, let me tell you something. I remember, I remember when hipster was not such a bad thing. You know, a hipster, the true meaning of the word hip was sort of to be at the Vanguard and in yeah. the know. I mean, Lenny Bruce was a hipster. Dizzy Gillespie was a hipster. Yeah, you but you know, weren't you know, buying your clothes. Yeah, actually, now, I'm not that old. Actually, of course. your jeans are too loose to be for you to really be hipster. Oh man, you know. Um, so I think you're actually in the clear. Yeah, what about 4.1% street fares? I believe I deep believe that should be bigger. Street fares yeah. are the lowest of the low. The food is beat. Unbelievably bad. Yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah. And it's and, like and the you can time. buy 200 socks for a dollar. And there's a thousand markets with farmers and all this great stuff. Carpenters doing amazing stuff. Those street fairs, they get the whole city yeah. to close. They are the lowest of the low. New yeah, Yorkers yeah. deserve and there's better. So many, and there's, there's so many great crafty things going on here in New York, and they could fill it with people that are doing good things using, um, you know, uh, uh, like more of a green event, but then they're just. Or, or, or real flea market, not just this sort of rubber yeah. stamp generic. Yeah, yeah, cheap socks and cheap, uh, socks, cheap earrings. Cheap, exactly, knockoff sunglasses and that weird corn pancake that I've never been able to figure out. That the is, arepa. Uh, yeah, that thing. Uh, the are- you know, I, those I, are pretty good. I gotta support the arepa. Yeah. I mean, maybe not the street fair. Maybe I gotta go down to Red Hook, but you know, no, there's a good. You know, it seems to be something good. invented by the Simpsons. <laughs> I, I don't no. <laughs> no, if you go down to Miami, like you know, Cubans, they they live on arepas. All right, well, so it's good because. Basically cornbread with cheese in the middle, and then you fry it in butter. Okay. I love it. By the way, they have a hipster. That poor kid. I hate people who hate hipsters. <laughs> so, um, well, that's a uh, very interesting. And uh, by the way, I just took our tip jar away, our heritage radio <laughs> tip jar, because two point six percent of people don't like tip jars. Oh, everywhere. really? Yeah. I hate I- seeing silverware in Japanese restaurants. Oh really? Yeah, that it drives me insane. You. It's 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 dumbing it down for people who don't know or have enough respect to do it right. I hate being on a date with a guy in a Japanese restaurant who insists on using a fork. Oh, I'm just man. like that, embarrassing. That, that's I'm a like, deal, really deal breaker. <laughs> like, deal breaker. It's 2010. You can't use chopsticks yet. <laughs> Total deal breaker. That's a deal breaker. <laughs> so uh, what about deal breakers? Uh, do guys have, I mean, is it still a male-dominated industry? I mean, farming, you upstate New York, restaurant industry. I mean, is it, are women now fully equal and everything's the same? Or is there still things that, like, guys might not get uh, by because they're guys? I feel like I, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like I live in my own little bubble world. Um, so, I'm, you know, in my world, things feel pretty equal because I'm, Doing what I'm doing, what some you know, a, a job that uh, a lot of men do, um, but it, there's you know the whole discussion of you know women getting the same accolades as men getting, and um, you know men chefs are sexy, women chefs are just 
women chefs. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. the different kind of. Um, I think you're sexy, Shana. <laughs> I think I'm sexy too, but. <laughs> All right. The fact that you guys live with each other now and share no, the I'm same email, <laughs> this is a coming out party. No, no, no. Just for the week. Just for the week. I, I have a new place, you know? So. Where? Bedside. Oh, nice. Putnam and Marcy. That's, well, that's where all the hipsters are now. Yeah, well, that's why I moved yeah. there. You know, working <laughs> at my aesthetic. Be prepared to be annoyed. But, I mean, there's not. I mean, there's not a lot of you know women running around selling heritage pork, is there? No, I mean, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, but I mean, would they be mis- Would they be treated any different if they were? You know what I mean? Like uh, I know that when we were doing deliveries together, Patrick, that I got treated differently when I carried the box of pork, and I'm pretty sure that like the dudes <laughs> carrying the box of the pork in never got help from anyone. But you know. But is that a nice thing? I would wish someone would take pity on me and take it off my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, it was a nice thing there, you know, and I think, like, um, when I do when I was delivering the pigs in the city and there were certain restaurants, like, I would carry the pig down the first time and then the second time they'd be like, oh, no, no, mommy, mommy, please. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. come get us. You have many friends here, you know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and they they take the pig for me, which is nice, but... Uh, you know, I think women are, they're making their way around. It's not its not equal. We're not there yet, but there's a lot of good stuff happening. And I think there's a lot of leadership from, um, I think, men in the industry. I know uh, Savoy, where I worked for Peter Hoffman, and Gramercy Tavern, where I work under Mike Anthony. Women were really supported, and, uh-huh. um, you know, they created an environment that was very female-friendly. And That's cool. A lot of those people went on to do kind of exciting stuff. It's still mostly male chefs. I mean, totally it's, uh, kitchens are chefs. dominated by by men still, right? I mean, for the most well, part. Well, I think it comes down to there's a point in life that you know a woman has to make the choice between children and family, um, as opposed to career, or at least take a break. And and if you're taking that substantial of a break, that might change your mind of your career path. So, what about female TV chefs? No. Yeah, there, who, there, you know, who, there's a lot of people. Well, there's right. a lot of them, but uh, Cat Cora. See, but it seems to me. I'm just, I feel like there's now, a lot of Rachel Ray. There's a lot yeah. of Rachel Ray's, and it's a lot of kind of dumbed down. I mean, there was Julia Child at one end of the spectrum, of course, and I mean, no one could follow one of those recipes. Yeah. Um, and then there's Rachel Ray, who's like, you know, yeah. really dumbing it down. And in between, are there and any the good food network TV? basically turned into like all dumbed down, like, let me show you how to make chi- cream of chicken soup out of a can of cream of chicken soup and like and it's just kind of like really we're still there and you, you they've kind of I feel like the Food Network's digressed in that like sense of they're oh. just doing the same crap they're sponsored by Kraft do you watch any food TV? Um, I actually don't have cable at the moment, so I don't really watch a lot of TV. I heard Party Down was uh, since we brought oh it up. Oh my god, it's so good! Yeah. <laughs> I watch really? it on Netflix. Really? What's yeah. Party what Down? is that story? Uh, it's part. It's a like behind the scenes catering company. You know, a bunch of dudes who run catering, and it's like situational comedy. But it's very uh, definitely doesn't make me want to get catering anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> is it like uh, reality or no? No, it's a, oh, it's, it's a sitcom. sitcom yeah. I don't know. I don't have too much to say. Yeah, about it's it. a catering it out, thing, right? yeah, and it's like each show is a different catering job. A different job, like yeah. yeah. So, uh, well, what else? Um, pet peeves? Dan, you've taken my uh, cheat sheet away. <laughs> um, well, you want to know if the recession was over? Yes. You're uh, worried about it. I'm here to tell you no. It's not over. Well, ah. I'm a journalist. I'm in the publishing racket. I'm getting the shit kicked out of me, frankly. Isn't um, um, the restaurants full again? And we've never. I mean, we actually um, succeeded um, and got busier as the recession happened because we just happened to 
being this niche of uh, casual, lowbrow uh, food, not very expensive, um, that became the in thing for people to go eat. So the people that were normally going and spending $100 on dinner per person were like, oh, that's not cool to do anymore. I want to spend $40 a person for dinner. And then they started going to places like Back 40. And that's where, that's where actually the question came from yeah. about the recession is, how can you eat more cheaply and efficiently at a restaurant? Do you need to drop 100 bucks on dinner or can you come to Back 40 and have a burger and a beer yeah. and get out of there for, for a Jackson? And one of the reasons we asked that is because Carl Petrini, who started Soul Food, like I heard him make a great speech, and he is so pissed at the sustainable food movement for flagellating themselves that it's so elitist. Oh, here's my elitist, very expensive cheese. Yeah. He's like, you're not that expensive. Yeah. Stop presuming that you are because what are you comparing yourself to whatever you are isn't that cheap in and of itself even before you consider all the environmental and worker right and humane animal treatment rights even before any of that stuff it is expensive applebee's is like 20 bucks a person or something yeah i mean but but i mean i feel like at back 40 we show that you don't have to spend that much money to get tasty local sustainable seasonal food I mean it's just kind of I mean so I, sh- I shop example. at I shop at the green market um, just like Gramercy Tavern shops at the green market um, we just put uh, we take less steps to to produce a dish how much is a hamburger at back 40 yeah um, uh, it's eleven dollars eleven dollar hamburger mm-hmm but just just the burger uh-huh. No, no cheese, cheese no bacon no fries it's two dollars each for extra so that can be a pretty pricey hamburger you know, well, if, you, if you if you get a, if you're getting a burger that works with bacon, cheese, and fries, like that's that's pretty pricey. Does it come with fries? A pint of no. beer and a tip. How much am I going to drop on the bar? <sighs> pint of beer. So it's about you're probably about thirty dollars. Thirty. Okay, that's expensive. Thirty bucks for a burger, fries, and a beer. That is a lot. Yeah, but that that, is, is, that a is a lot. But that's also um, it's also a well-raised, pasture-raised animal that's been humanely treated and not given hormones. And it is an ass-kicking burger. About I mean, it's not. You know, like that. there's certain things yeah. I feel like you should be paying money for. Um, it, you know, you should be paying money for a, a good burger. You should be paying money for good proteins. Um, but then you can come in also and have, uh, you know, an appetizer um, and a bunch of sides and a bunch, you know, and an entree and spend like forty dollars a person, and it's and you're eating a perfectly good meal. Which in another restaurant you're going to be spending way more. But I mean, like, let's go to I mean, just to mention it, Mama Fuko. You go and have that big bowl of noodles, which is a, a full meal. <laughs> yeah, that's only like ten bucks, eight bucks, I think, or something. They're simpler ones. I think they offer you other versions because, in their defense, they're trying to sell all different types of things for more money or less. But like here, you can get a margarita, at Roberta's, and a beer, and be out of here for fifteen dollars. No, I think you can definitely you like yeah. you can you can eat less expensively in restaurants. But I think also if you're thinking about spending money on food, it's like grocery stores, farmers markets, like buying good quality raised food you know you have to use a little bit of ingenuity to like put stuff together but Uh you can definitely do it on a budget that's a real issue you know i mean having disposable income to to spend to go out to restaurants to spend on 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 well-raised food you know it's it's a lifestyle choice well also our culture is so like obsessed with we want the best of everything we want the best cars we want the best computer we want the best hair the best makeup the best everything but then when it comes to food we're like oh wait a minute but i don't i don't want to spend my money on that 
But that's what we put into our bodies. So exactly. why wouldn't you spend an extra couple dollars and by the to way, eat a good piece of steak or eat a good piece of pork? I mean, when we say thirty dollars is a lot for a really stellar full meal, going to the movies is easily twenty dollars a person uh, by the yeah. time you get there and get a popcorn. So we're not well, we're not well, rallying yeah. against movies costing too much. No. Wait, and, I am. Yeah, I am. I <laughs> Let the Jew speak. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm. No, I always felt there should be a sliding scale for the admission to movies. <laughs> this is something that Hollywood is dead set against. A few other um, equal, scale, e- e- huh? equally cheap New York Jews have suggested this. Well, here's you the deal. If Titanic costs $300 million to make, it has you know, a cast of like superstars. All right, 12 bucks. Okay, it's ma- it's a massive accomplishment. A slasher movie that costs thirty thousand dollars to make and has a bunch of high school kids in it. Why uh, should that cost the same as to see the Titanic? And I'll tell you what, for three bucks, I'd be going to see a lot of slasher movies because that's good. Yeah. Like, you know, the Rolling Stones cost one hundred twenty bucks to go see them. I My have, band, you walk in for free at the dive bar because yeah. that's what the market dictates. Well, I have you know, <laughs> I have like movies I'll only watch in the movie theaters and movies sure. that I'm like, oh, that that's not a twelve dollar movie. Avatar, I want to see. Show me what fifty million dollars looks like. Yeah. Blow my mind. Not my eyes right yeah. out of my head. Yeah. I want to see that. And then I should pay the same $13 well, or whatever the, it is. The IMAXs are like $20. IMAX, and I'll tell you what, the IMAX screen, the new IMAX screen isn't as big as the old IMAX screen. They've sort of changed the definition. There was a bit of like a, a little bit of a creep downwards. Um, I mean, IMAX I also addresses... IMAX used to be in uh, Natural History Museum. Sure, and it was 12 where. stories tall and it absorbed your peripheral vision and you'd go see one of these movies shot from a hot air balloon or from the Hubble Space Telescope yeah. and it was amazing and you'd get motion sickness. It was so great. That was the you first really one felt you were there. I mean, that was like unbelievable and a value right 3D yeah. IMAX in outer space now I went to see Inception on the IMAX screen the other day it was you know $19 or something We're crazy like uh, uh, yeah one of the because what they've done is they've retrofit IMAX screens for the multiplexes yeah. and IMAX also doesn't describe the size of the screen it also describes the technology of how it's shot and how it's projected and it looked great I mean there's no question about it but did it look better than something I saw at the Ziegfeld which has got about the same size screen yeah. you know with an old 35 millimeter old technology I'm not sure the problem is movies don't look good anymore and this is what all movies should look like they yeah. shouldn't be at the vanguard elitist 19 dollars vip yeah. sucker price so there it is. this That's is what a, it should all be yeah. it's the same amount for a movie so for people to say i agree with uh with mike so if a movie costs 30 dollars, why can't a meal so yeah. it's not expensive you it's, know the I fact mean, no. and and by the way like i say the very most commodity inhumanely raised antibiotic full animals are served at restaurants that cost $30 or 24 or something crazy. Yeah, you know, crappy right food there. is expensive too. Yeah, you, you know. go to Applebee's. I, mean, I say Applebee's, but uh, you know, any of these oh. sit-down family places. I mean, New York City's filled with really great restaurants, but it's also filled with like who, I was like, how is that restaurant even in business? I've never even heard of this place. You're like on, you know, No Name Street 20-something and um, and there, you know, you'll go in and the burger's like $13 and there's nothing special going on there. Yeah. A lot of bad Italian restaurants selling $22 plates of pasta. Yeah. How does that happen? But, you know, Patrick, you talked about the sustainable food and specific to your business, to, um, to Heritage Food, is that it's an economy of scale that a family of four you know, could feed themselves without spending too much, you know, more money on healthy, organic, you know, humane, sustainable food, as opposed to, you know, getting a block yeah. of, you know, cheese whiz and, you know, and, and fluffernutters. But it's more the that bothers me is the journalists or, or, or the yelpers or all these people who will accuse it and, and not accuse a myriad of other things, the cost of sneakers, the cost of Walkman, and also dumb down the food issue for people because they might be poor. They're like, oh, that person's dirt poor. They shouldn't 
shouldn't have to deal with this expensive piece of cheese. You're like, you know, should they go to Disney World? Oh, of course. You know, yeah, they deserve that. Or should yeah, no, they go spend $400 for a basketball game? needs to be wrapped in plastic individually. Yeah. Uh, and that's the only way to eat it. <laughs> well, talking about that, what are the top 10 dishes in America? We think we have hamburger down. What do you uh, What do you guys think? The most frequently served dishes in America. Ooh, like mac and cheese, fried chicken, barbecue. Um, like is barbecue really? Well, a these are American thing? staples. I think those are American staples. I don't know. Uh, Hamburgers I and hot dogs. Mac and cheese. Pizza, obviously. And, you know, pizza is great too. Speaking of being able to get in and out of a restaurant without losing your shirt, pizza has always been, you know, the, the best bargain, the best Food bang for, the for your buck. We, yeah. we actually just went. Where do we go to Frank's Pepe? Oh, Frank Frank Pepe's in New Haven, Connecticut. Oh, yeah. It was good. Big Pizza Town, New Haven. It was yeah. really that kinda good. That kind of has like the corn crust, right? Cornmeal crust, a uh, little. Mm. It's like they're famous for their like tomato pie because they don't do sauce. It's just tomatoes and mm. cheese. And then their clam pie because the founder was allergic to tomatoes. So he makes clam pie is like, great. outrageous clam pie. Fish and cheese, really? No, well, no, the clam pie at Lombardi's doesn't yeah. have cheese on it, for instance. Um, you know, down on Spring Street, that's a, that's yeah. a good pie. Well, the trick we, to that is, though, of course, you got to order it first and eat it quickly because it gets cold very, very fast. fast. Yeah. So uh, we're going to take a break because we're at our 42nd minute and we take 20 second, uh, twenty second. Oh, wait a second. Wait, am I wrong? Am I off by 10 minutes? Nope. I, no, you're right. No, your math is good, Pat. Okay. I trust you. 40 <laughs> divided by 20 is 2. Okay, right. Wow. And we're going to come back with um, we're going to come back with Jeff Mosher from Robert Mandavi Winery. All right, we're back at the main course with Patrick, Aaron, Shauna. I might get us in. And our sponsor today is White Oak Pastures, mm-hmm. all natural grass-fed beef, and they're available in whole food stores in the Mid-Atlantic states. And we hope you'll support their program through your purchase of um, their beef to one of these whole food stores. And please check them out. Visit their website at whiteoakpastures.com. They're very good. We've been selling their filet mignons, their strips, and their ribeyes, and uh, yeah, people love them. They just great taste. Nothing like a happy cow. Nothing. Well, you know, their slaughterhouse <laughs> is right. on the farm, so really? that cow has literally just gets walked into a house, so it doesn't have to go through the suffering of entering into a trailer or you know all these different things. And neither do the people have to load that 
cat. Cows are big. And I know. I feel like people forget that, but cows, it's like a car. I know. You know, <laughs> you, it's not like, come gently this way. Let In me fact, they're the largest edible livestock. There is no livestock larger than the cow, right? Elephants. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not eating well, a lot of elephants. Yeah, asking, asking the wrong, <laughs> wrong bunch of New York City slickers. <laughs> so, no, but, but what about yeah. like an elk? Does that count as livestock? I don't even know what livestock, when something stops being yeah. livestock and it starts becoming I think game. It has to be domesticated. Right? Yeah, yeah, I don't think elk can be domesticated. I could be wrong, though. Because, you know, I was looking at an elk, one of these, you know, you know giant you know, heads on the wall, and we sort of did the math. That's a 12-foot beast. Yeah. That's like crazy. It's elephant-sized. I elephant still don't think an elk is more than a cow. More than a cow, no. I think no, a cow weighs like, like two tons, right? Yeah. yeah or and one two ton. tons. It, and it's, that's, I think, crazy, but you go to, like, a small slaughtering house, and the first thing I notice is, like, the ceilings are so high. Because if you think about it, you have a string up that whole cow. It's, like, 17 feet long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Not small. <laughs> yeah, the the up there where you were working in the Vatican. Yeah, at Eagle Eagle Bridge Custom Meats. Yeah. Well, we're very excited about our guest who's calling in from Napa Valley, talking about highbrow, lowbrow. He is making this a highbrow show by broadcasting from the Napa Valley. Uh, Jeff, are you with us? Hi, Patrick. How are you? Hey, hey how's it going? Good, man. Where are you calling from? Like the uh, Mandavi Kitchen, or are you at your own home, or are you at the restaurant? I, I'm in my, my own kitchen. What time is it? In your own kitchen. Yeah, it's early o'clock. there. Oh, just before 10, right? So thanks so yeah, much for being here. Tell us uh, about... Sure, yeah, uh, what is uh, Tell us about Robert Mandavi. Like, uh, people know it's a winery where you can go taste wine, but it's also sure. a restaurant. Tell us a little bit about uh, this uh, seminal part of uh, American food history town winery sure so so i'm the chef at the robert mandavi winery which is in oakville california just north of the town of napa right sort of in the heart of the napa valley and they've been doing the winery's been open since 1966 and they've been doing food programs since about 68 or 69 so you know it's not a it's not a new thing that they're doing uh food and there's also a big art commitment at the winery there's, uh, you know, we have a rotating art show uh, in the vineyard room, which is where we do all of the, uh, the food programs. And then there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of sculptures on the property. And Robert Mandavi and his wife Margaret have sort of always had this commitment to intertwining wine, food, and the arts. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he used to say that uh, wine was made to be enjoyed with food, family, and friends. And so they've been making food-friendly wines for years and years. And so. Where the program is now is we do all sorts of different uh, meals. There's uh, a number of different things that are open to the public. It's all by appointment, though. It's not not a restaurant in the sense where you can just walk in and, and grab a table anytime. So what type of parties do you end up having to do? Is it people weddings or is it people who are like in from Japan with a busload of people to see the winery? Like, What type of crowds uh, do you guys end up servicing? Probably, uh, I'd say two-thirds of what we do is trade-related, so that's it's sort of a, a vehicle for, uh, for selling wine. So we have people who, who buy wine from us in, say, Cleveland or New York, and they're invited to come to the winery. If they, you know, if they make it out to California, they're invited to come for a tour and a tasting and a meal. And so we do a lot of things like that. And then the rest of it is public programs. Uh, we do occasionally do large parties just for outside groups, um, not weddings, but basically everything besides weddings. Somebody wants to have a, a corporate function or they just want to have a birthday party or 
that sort of thing. You know, it's basically everything from two to about three hundred. And uh, what uh, is there a certain food ethic towards the Robert Mandavi? I mean, for our listeners, I mean, I'm sure all of our listeners know. I mean, Robert Mandavi is essentially credited with the founding of the valley and the 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 making that terroir well known as a wine producing region, right? And so, I mean, what's it like to produce food? Is it any different than any other place, or is there a certain ethic and mission and ingredients that he requires uh, for for his uh, namesake uh, place there? Well, they they definitely like uh, fresh, simple, uh, you know, tasty food. Uh, and, and beyond that, they've sort of let me do whatever I want. And so I've tried to bring a... Uh, you know, an elegant garden-to-table philosophy to the winery. Um, you know, before at Mandavi, I was at Copia, as you know, for a number of years, and there was a real commitment there to uh, the freshest things, you know, anything that we have to buy, buy has to be sustainable, all that kind of stuff. And so I've brought that sort of ethic with me to, to Mandavi, and it, and it fit right in with their philosophy, I think. Now, uh, you mentioned Copia. I mean, I'm really into this idea of food museums. Um, I mean, I don't know what you're at liberty to say, but, like, what what happened with Copia? Like, why why didn't... Was it just people not coming? Was it the uh, exhibitions that they chose, the marketing? Like, what was the fatal flaw to, to Copia? Well, I think... You know the the timing the timing wasn't good. It was a little bit ahead of when people in Napa I think are going to be ready for it. And then the actual ultimate demise uh, had a lot to do with the financial situation in the U.S. in uh, was it 2008? I guess the fall. But uh, overall, I think there was a <clears throat> there was a problem. They couldn't make up their mind what they wanted to be. You know that it was supposed to be a nonprofit organization. But they didn't develop a sort of endowment that would allow a large nonprofit like that to exist. Uh-huh. And then they were trying to make money in certain aspects of the place, but they only had very limited. It was like something like 10 or 15% of the overall space. They were allowed to actually sell things and make money. Part of that being the restaurant, and then there was a gift shop and things like that. And so those things weren't able to support it. So huh. they, essentially, they just ran out of money. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and then Robert Mandavi, didn't he eventually, towards the end of his life, he really concentrated on cheaper table wines, like everyday wines, right, rather than expensive wines. That seemed also the thing with Copia. You didn't know if it was highbrow or lowbrow. Was it a museum for everyone to come and hang out, or was it, uh, um, you know, an elite type of uh, museum? Um, But uh, anyway, that was too bad, because certainly I think the world deserves a food museum. And some affordable table wine as well. And some affordable table wine. (laughs) Robert Mondavi is such a name brand. I think a lot of Americans, I mean, I do, I associate. Well, I guess the question is, does a name brand help or hurt wines? I think a lot of people think brands that, you know, wines that have a name brand uh, may not be as good as, you know, more boutique wines. You know, especially, you know, from California with with a name brand, it might be seen as too middle-brow. Uh-huh. You know, or middle brow to low brow, uh-huh. just because we're used to the brand, you know, as opposed to you know something a little bit more fancy schmancy and elitist, like the people here at Heritage Food Radio. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the VIP lounge in the back here. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's very, very, uh, very interesting. All this stuff. So, what events do you have? And and, and now, Mar- Margaret Mandavi, right? That's Robert's wife. 
Yeah. And now, does she still... She was always a very active role in terms of bringing music and this and that. Does yeah. she still play an active hand in, in the feel of the winery? Uh, yeah, she's she's there all the time. She still does a lot of traveling uh, and to, to promote the winery and then just some, some personal traveling. But whenever she's in Napa, she's she's at the winery. You know, she'll, she'll entertain guests and, uh, you know, I'll make her lunch and then she'll attend certain functions and... You know she's uh, she's great. She's just yeah, lively, full of energy. I think I told you that I went on a trip with her a few months ago. Yeah, we just had we just had a blast. We went to Singapore and Hong Kong to promote the wine. You know, I did a couple dinners in each city, but uh, just hang, hanging out with her was was so much fun. You know, she's wine royalty, so you go places and people are just so excited to see her, and it was just uh, it was a blast. What do you make for her? What is uh, what's her favorite meal? <clears throat> Oh boy, let's see. She, I'm trying to think, what is she? Well, one thing, one thing that, so we have a garden at the winery, and uh, there's only one item in the garden that she will not let me change. Everything else I can do whatever I want, but we have some, uh, some Fray de Bois, little uh, wild strawberries that have been there for years and years, and, and that's her thing. She says, you know, Jeff, you can do whatever you want with the garden, just don't change the Fray de Bois. So is Robert Mondavi still making uh, table wine? Sort of well, what it low, is, lower, lower priced or better priced, um, yeah, table wine. I think what you're referring to is there. There are two other, two other wines. One's called Woodbridge, and one's called Private Selection mm-hmm. by Robert Mondavi. Mm-hmm. So those are two wines that are uh, they're owned by the same company that's owned that owns Robert Mondavi Winery now, but they're not made at the same facility. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll say Robert Mondavi Winery uh, at the place where I work. And that's the original facility. And then these other wines, uh, Woodbridge is in Lodi, and Private Selection is down in uh, Central Coast area. So totally different winemakers, different facilities, different uh, philosophies, I guess, if you will, in terms of how the the wines are made and uh, what sort of handcrafted kind of things uh, go into them. The the wines that are made at the Robert Mondavi Winery are really, really high-end wines, you know, real handcrafted, you know, the best. Okay, let's. Best techniques, everything. Can we talk for a minute about gangster rap? So, <laughs> there's this, you know, a, a few years ago there was this real like East Coast West Coast divide, you know, and and I think that's been happening a little bit in food. You know, there's like, what's better? Is it San Francisco? Is it Napa Valley? Or is it New York? Like, how do you compare the two? What does San Francisco got on New York? What does New York got on San Francisco and beyond? And I feel like um, a lot of the cooks I worked with either came from San Francisco or heading back out to San Francisco or the Napa Valley area to cook. And I'm wondering, you know, you're obviously at an education center. Like, what do you see for young cooks? Like, in your kitchen or in that area, like what mm-hmm. what, do, what do you have to offer um, people coming from you know the Midwest or the or the East Coast? Like what's what's the scene like out there? I mean, what are the after parties like when all the wineries shut down and the tourists go away? Like what's what's happening? Uh, uh, Public Enemy or Dr. Dre? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I like the gangster rap I mean, opening. The classic heritage segue. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a funny reference. I think uh, I think the big thing that San Francisco and Napa has to offer is place. You know, in, in California, you have such an abundance of of fresh, you know, organic vegetables. You have people that are, you know, raising animals humanely that are close by. You know, you have, you're on the coast, so you have fish. I think that's probably the biggest difference between this and New York. New York seems a little bit more intense to me. I haven't worked in New York, but I've been to New York a number of times, and I know people who've worked in New York kitchens, and uh, it's 
you know, I think there's maybe more of a focus on technique than on product on the East Coast. Uh, well, I, feel but, uh, like, I feel like we're on, I think we're the, on the coast. parties are probably better. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we we I, we have you know local sustainable humanely raised animals, and uh, we have an abundance of fresh vegetables. Yeah, I mean, like I'm, I've never I've never or seasons are shorter. I mean, I've never worked out in California, um, and I've only been out there once. Um, but when people that work out there say that to me, I'm like, but we have the same thing. I'm like, I don't understand what that. Um, well, we don't have, uh, you know, livestock roaming Brooklyn, but yes, but we live in a place where we're surrounded by farms outside of New York yeah, City. Yeah, within, I mean, a lot within, you know, 20 miles, 30 miles from New York City, you can find some farms um, that are growing some pretty good stuff. Oh, um, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you've got... But it's not the terroir-like... California has. I mean, Northern California. Well, is that what is it like, is? Is it, is it the terroir? I think literally it's an environmental thing there, and then the culture followed suit. But it was something that was just there, like beautiful weather all the time, little valley, you know, of a, a pocket of gastronomy, basically. Hippies. And then, <laughs> and then hippies not hipsters. So, so you That's think right. you think our after parties yeah. are better than your after parties? Are we actually at a point now where it's more preferable to be a hippie than a hipster? I don't know. Well, you talk about culture creep. <laughs> I know. Things have changed. Well, that was always a big thing of the Northern California movement was to shed this hippie um, mantra because hippie food doesn't say good food. I mean, that doesn't speak. It, it says lentils speaks. to me. Yeah, it says lentils or something. <laughs> but, you know, it's a lot more than that. So uh, what else? Any other? What's this trends in Napa? Like anything unusual going on? Are there new restaurants opening? Is or is it still the same uh, things that we know? The French Laundry and no, I want to know what's happening at Ubuntu. At Ubuntu? Yeah, like yeah. Well, J- Jeremy left. I know. I was like, that was. Yeah. I mean, devastating. I'm excited to see what he's got going on next. But like, I yeah. Don't know. So he's going to be opening a restaurant for Daniel Patterson in Oakland. That uh, that should be pretty interesting, and and they're gonna have you know they're gonna have a, a big garden that they pull from, and I mean I, I would say regarding the the terroir if you will and the, the garden thing, I think it's more that like everybody out here has a garden, you know I, I go and I cut the herbs you know an hour before I need them from ten feet out my back door, and I think there's just a lot more of that kind of thing going on here than on the east coast, mainly due to due to climate. Well, out here at Roberta's, right we're surrounded by gardens. There's a garden. There's a garden on the roof of uh, this very uh, sustainable and uh, rescued scavenged radio station yeah. that we're working in. You know, the, the radio station here at Roberta's is made from a couple old shipping containers. Correct. Um, everything here was rescued or uh, scavenged or salvaged. And on top, there's a green garden, a lot of herbs yeah. that are used here. And of course, uh, Roberta's is at the vanguard of urban farming here in Brooklyn. Yeah, with one of the largest. Well, I think that I think that's awesome, and I think. I think Vanguard is, is the you know the key word there. I think you guys are doing, you guys at the Heritage Radio Network, you know places like Roberto's that you're talking about are are great and they're and they're they're pushing it. But I think it's just all I'm saying is that I think it's more the norm out here than it is out there. No, well, I, that's true. I don't think you can argue that. Sure, I'll tell you what though. Here's a big secret. Everybody here is a hippie, <laughs> but they're hardworking hippies. Hardworking hippies. You know, it's a New York that hippie. Exists? It's a little different. Yeah, I know, right? It's a smashing. Smashing myths left and right here at the Heritage Radio Network. Well, Jeff, tell us, true. is there a, a website that people can go to if they wanted to rent out uh, or, you know, the space back there or, or you know, have a special yeah, meal cooked? Yeah, I mean, just you can go to the Robert Mondavi Winery website. Uh, right now I'm doing a program, which is a garden-to-table program. It's every Saturday night in August. 
basically, we go out in the garden at 4 o'clock. We pick vegetables and herbs. We come into the kitchen, prep for about an hour, do some of the, some of the tasks for the meal, and then they go on a little tour of the winery, come back, and we have a, a three-course meal with the food that uh, they help prepare. Oh, fantastic. Robert Mandavi Winery, by the way, very, very good to slow food during its early days. And we took a tour, and there were all these hoity-toity other slow food people from places like Healdsburg that were like, we will not go to Robert Mandavi Winery. That is too big. And so Alice Waters had to call them and be like, get a hold of yourself. They just gave us $30,000 to friggin' organize this event, and you're going to have the national office turn it down because you think that's too big a winery. It's the curse of the name. I, I, I have yeah. a question. You mentioned earlier that you don't do weddings. Is there a reason? You do other events but not weddings? There's a law in Napa County that doesn't allow weddings. There are a couple wineries oh. at wineries. There are a couple that have been grandfathered in. Uh-huh. But all the all the wineries in Napa County, I mean, I'm sorry, all the weddings in Napa County are at resorts or hotels. Sonoma County does weddings. What, what, just, what's, what's that law about? It, to, it's, maybe we can work I this think, into the Prop 8 uh, <laughs> overruling somehow. <laughs> I don't know. I think some winery owners just don't uh, don't want to see it. I don't know exactly why. Maybe it's a uh, promotes drunk you know, driving. They're, they're, they're against love. A lot of <laughs> yeah, they're against the unity and love and life and a future and family. They don't want anyone else reproducing Napa. They want Basically, they don't want 120 shit-faced people <laughs> like smashing up their all. Yeah, that's oh, fair. God. That's fair. And a bad DJ. <laughs> well, Jeff, you've been awesome. Thank you so much for taking time in the early morning, and I know you have family and everything. So thanks for coming on and, and enlightening our listeners a little bit on what's going out on the West Coast. Are you going to do? Welcome, a, are you going to do a sign-off rap for us? Uh, <laughs> East Coast. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Well, uh, no. I'll call you on Tuesday <laughs> for your order. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Talk to you later. Thanks. Man. Never stops doing business, Patrick. <laughs> so uh, we'll take a break, and we're going to come back uh, with a couple of guests who we just spotted out in uh, Roberta's, and they're going to come and talk about art and culture.
out far and wide Till you see the speck in someone else's eye What if other sweet transgress might not be no more And when we reach the end there's nothing left in store Uh, should we talk about yeah what the hell we're sponsored by white oak pastures uh will harris is super awesome guy we're here with china pacifico hello aaron fairbanks Very mike nice. edison and now we are joined by uh some awesome people melinda shopson and andrew lampert hi hi how are you well that was a chance encounter roberta so tell us uh, a little bit you know you're a jack of all trades melinda and you andrew are uh, an arc the archivist of the anthology film archives yes i am i'm also a brunch eater <laughs> you eat brunch i do well today actually i had um pizza which is I, I guess is that brunch food it is here what time is it i think it's a time pizza thing. time that's breakfast of champions yeah, anywhere you cheese are cheese and bread so i mean you can't go wrong with that yeah if you put some alcohol with it it's a brunch food oh uh, there you go <laughs> and here you are once again smashing the elitist myth of the roberto's radio show yeah exactly <laughs> you know you're a vip now that you're in here oh well, right on apparently according to some so what's it mean to be the archivist of the anthology film archives uh well uh the short short version of it is that I'm in charge of the collections there um, and uh, there are about 20,000 films uh, 5,000 videos uh, so I am uh, taking care of their sort of uh, long term and daily maintenance um, I do a lot of preservation uh, so each year Anthology preserves by making new negatives and new prints from uh, the originals Does or that make a positive? Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, we reserve about 25 to 35 films. Uh, so I do the fundraising, and I technically oversee that. And uh, I also do uh, a lot of uh, programming of our theaters. So it sounds like there's an actual artisan quality to actually, like, what is the process of preserving these negatives? Yeah, do you get to wear, like, really cool tiny glasses or, like, I use loops a lot. I look look at things through loops a lot. Uh, I worked at a place once where, um, at the George Eastman House uh, Museum in Rochester, where they make you wear booties when you go (laughs) into their vault. It's like being at NASA. White gloves, yeah. Oh, definitely. You you have to wear white gloves. Are you still working on the old moviolas and the flatbeds? Yeah, Steenbeck flatbeds. That's the best. It is, it is. I mean, what's involved is, uh, sometimes it's very simple. You have uh, the original film, which the filmmaker uh, spliced together, and it's in good shape. So you take it to a laboratory, and you oversee the production of a new negative and a new prints, which match the original. Sometimes, like... um, uh, case of a film, for instance, uh, by a guy, uh, Robert Downey Sr., a film he made uh, in the mid-60s called Chafed Elbows. Um, which on- is awesome. It's just a comedy. It's crazy comedy. Is that Robert Downey Jr.'s <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Iron Man's dad. Um, uh, the, the only copy, there were only three prints of the film left, so we actually had to go through it and Frankenstein together and say, like, okay, that's the best ten frames, and then the next best section is on that print and then, and then really piece it all together to get the most complete and best looking copy of the film so it can really it really can vary uh, and uh, the artisan quality of it really comes in in that um, 
you know, uh, the types of uh, filmmaking processes and stocks that people were using 30, 40 years ago aren't around today. So you have to use uh, modern uh, technology to try to make something look old. And at the same time, you are not trying to make it look better than it used to look. You're not trying to make right. the 2.0 version. So it's a challenge. Tell us, where does the archive, uh, the anthology uh, film archives rank with other film archives around the world or around the country? And does it have a special niche that it specializes in as opposed to the others? Yeah, uh, I mean, anthology this year is celebrating its 40th anniversary. And we were founded uh, by a number of people, including a man named Jonas Makus, uh, specifically to uh, preserve, promote, and present experimental avant-garde independent cinema. And so, uh, from the get-go, that's where we were at. I mean, a lot of other film archives and museums also have specialty areas, like MoMA, for instance, is very invested in uh, the cinema of D.W. Griffith. Uh, the George Eastman House in Rochester has a huge uh, silent film collection. Uh, and with us, uh, it went from initially, like I said, these sort of artist films to... Um, collecting films out of dumpsters from widows, from weirdos from laboratories that went defunct so uh, that's how we managed to acquire uh, so many thousands of uh, films and in terms of, I would say like within other museums and whatnot, uh, anthologies by the, the sort of the breadth of its activity, 950 public programs a year the, you know, like I said, preserving those films we're kind of on the higher end of productivity huh and we're independent. We're not associated with a university, a uh, larger museum. If anybody who's listening to this is is really rich and wants <laughs> to uh, give us some money or uh, take over our board, <laughs> welcome to you know, call me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who are your Who are your funders? I mean, do you have any kind of crazy recluse film buffs who oh, like, send you secret checks, or is it mostly like <laughs> no, no, that they save ten the, and twenty dollar donations. Say, uh, save it for like the Library of Congress, and the, there's a guy, uh, you know, Hewlett Packard, David Packard. He, he's beyond rich. He's a huge movie buff, but he really only likes certain types of like musicals and things like that. So if you had like the you know like the Gene Kelly film archive, he'd probably give you a billion dollars. Uh, but with us. Uh, we're a member-based organization, so a lot of our income comes from uh, members uh, and ticket sales. Uh, we get support from uh, the New York State Council of the Arts, the Andy Warhol uh, Foundation for the Visual Arts. It's very, it's very piecemeal. Well, Anthology Archives always felt like a neighborhood institution to me. I mean, it's, all, you know, it's down there on 2nd Street, across the street from the Mars Bar. Oh, yeah. Mars Bar. <laughs> You'd stumble <laughs> which, in which, there. Uh, the rumors of its demise are still you know, always on the horizon, <laughs> and I think that's going to be a, a real blow to the New York They'll landscape. Never, I don't think it can ever... You can't replace it. And it's it can't I don't be think replaced. it can ever truly die. No, it's the last real punk rock dive in New York. But uh, oh, the last archives, time I was in there, I got hit in the head with a chair. Uh, last time I was there, <laughs> no, that that's, no, that was that's why I haven't been in for a while. Did they, did they charge extra for that? Um, I was, <laughs> last time I was in there, a fight broke out within 15 seconds, and everybody just sort of backed off. The fight went down the bar and out of the street, and everybody continued uh, drinking. But the uh, Anthology Archives is a very neighborhood place. It's not MoMA, that's for sure. Yeah. And um, I know this week um, there's a series of B movies. Oh, absolutely. This week, I've been mean, showing Maniac Cop this week, and I don't think that's going to be on the moment schedule. No, I mean, no, uh, uh, this coming up in the next week, I was just there last night um, watching a movie, which is something that I didn't expect myself to be doing, but uh, <laughs> I, I just got back to town. I've been on vacation, and uh, we're doing a series right now curated by uh, Bill Lustig, the man who, who brought us Maniac Cop. 
into this world. And it's it's European uh, crime heist B movies. Uh, last night's film was one I'd never heard of, starring John Cassavetes, Peter Falk, and Jenna Rollins. Uh, Machine Gun uh, McCain. McCain. Uh, Has an amazing theme. Con- yeah, Ennio Morricone <laughs> score and, and McCain. Uh, it was uh, it was really great. And then later on this week we have um, the films of Charles Ludlam, who was a. a uh, off off Broadway uh, queer theater pioneer of the 1970s whose uh, work uh, helped to make uh, uh, in, in a really uh, subtle you know way camp uh, part of our yeah. everyday uh, existence you know the uh, anthology archives were the home of the Stony Awards back when I was yes, uh, publisher was. of High Times and uh, borderline debacle but we somehow managed to get through the night I, I have to get your email because mm-hmm. uh, in this last week I've been scanning my old Polaroids, I have thousands of Polaroids and, and, and prints, and I found uh, a picture of about ten bongs lined up on top those of, was, those of, were of a uh, <laughs> piano, and I realized it was the Stony Awards, which which Dan Hedaya that year yep. got an award, and I remember being in the the so-called green room, which is just the yeah. room behind the screen. He wasn't happy, Dan. He was not it a was, happy There guy. was more smoke in there than I've ever seen. And I remember being in there as sort of like a theater manager and somebody who was standing next to the window, which is just a normal window, asked me, how do you open this thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, um, that was shortly before I left High Times. It kind of looked a little bit like good you. Terms, but the Stony, the Stony Awards actually were functional bongs. They, they, were, they were functional awards with oh, little, wow. little plaques on them. But, What's man, Dan Hedaya was not happy that night. He, he got it for wa- Dick, right? He walked. He got it for Dick. Because in Dick, he eats pop brownies? That, that's right. And Dick, Dick's a great, <laughs> movie. great movie. Dick's a great place. Great Richard movie. Nixon in oh. Dick. He came in, and he walked right into a bunch of... Um, da- well, he walked into David Peel. I don't know if you guys know oh, David Peel, legendary hip, hippie radical uh, leftist. Uh, uh, the, the Pope smokes the dope, dope yeah. have a marijuana for his songs. And David and his... Um, very uh, raggedy motley crew of um, uh, hotheads of, uh, <laughs> hotheads um, yeah overannuated superannuated hotheads um, and I think Dan was just like appalled he didn't really know what he was getting into with the, the Stony Awards and he took he saw that and I think it was not the typical Hollywood thing I mean Dan came in he was wearing a suit he had this ass yeah he looked on. totally nice he yeah. looked very Hollywood very award show he took one look at that walked out the door and Jason Mewes who's um, uh, Jay in the Silent Bob and yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, yeah. outside yeah. on the street vomiting. And this, what, and this is what Dan Hedaya walks into from like, you know, the stoners into Jason who was. What did he think was going to be? He was going to the Stony. What did he. I think he got a little more than he thought. Did he thought it was Tony? I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think he thought he was going to get thrown up on by, uh, yeah, by, by Silent Bob and Jay. <laughs> well, you know, I worked on the trials of Henry Kissinger and we got a Stonies, which I never really understood because it's not really. It's, it's a political documentary. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're grasshoppers. <laughs> we got one, I have a giant bomb. I mean, honestly, office. the way the Stonies work, I think if um, anybody who would actually show up. To receive the award was eligible to receive the award. Right. <laughs> That's sort of how that worked. I remember um, uh, uh, perhaps a colleague of yours, uh, Steve. Oh yeah. I remember. I remember uh, the. Uh, <laughs> you know, there were gift bags probably for the uh, uh, award recipients, and there were also gift bags for those of us who were just working at the theater. And when it you was. Say bag, nice. I mean, <laughs> I mean a Ziploc bag. Oh, okay. yeah. just, just yeah, to clarify. Yeah. And yeah. if you just show up at the awards, do you get the bag? You, or? you get a contact bag. Okay. Where? Where, <laughs> where, where, where are these awards? <laughs> when does it happen? Why am I not there? <laughs> Why haven't the I been show invented? might be a contender. 
<laughs> the show could be. So now, Melinda, tell us about you. Uh, are you uh, in film or more art? I mean, you're walking uh, around your house. It's like uh, uh, such a hodgepodge of different things. It's like impossible to know what you do because there's so much. Because I do stuff. so much. Uh, I don't. I don't stick in one place. But right now, I'm producing a documentary about the drug war, which I've been doing for sadly the last two years, and I feel like it's never going to finish. Well, much like well, the drug the, war itself. The drug yeah. war is never going to end. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it kind of goes right in line. I, mean, I don't really have a deadline because I'm not worried about them finishing shush, that up. Don't tell anybody. We lost it. We lost it. Yeah. So yeah. you were all uh, the inspired drugs won. by the "Just Say No" campaign of Nancy Reagan. And you want to make a tea party movie yeah. to celebrate that, yeah. right? Yeah. Is that pretty yeah, much it? Pretty much. A tea party. A tea <laughs> well, party except movie. that this documentary is uh, uh, quite you know. serious and a lot of. It's you know, pretty serious. It's a heavy, I'm, heavy thing. Well, where, where are we with the drug war? You don't hear about it as much. It's not well, sort of a top agenda item in the, you know, the culture wars or even the Republican or the uh, aptly named Tea Party. Well, what are um, the, I mean, Al- the a, party of Alice B. Toklas. Yeah, it's a huge <laughs> problem because it just goes on and on, and we keep spending money and enforcing, and nobody ever really talks about it anymore. But so nothing's having, changed, really. Well, yeah, well, the, the effects uh, of it have continued to escalate. I mean, we have 2.3 million people in jail now. Um, Mostly nonviolent. Uh, Mostly nonviolent possession. Cases. Uh, well, you know, dealing possession. And then if you talk to police, they say, oh, well, 80% of our crime is actually related to drugs. And so it's a huge problem um, of what to do with these people, how to put, like, economically afford what we've done. Um, well, my, my feeling so has always been that, A, it's, um, it's a health problem, not a. Uh, <laughs> crime problem. It's not a police problem. It's, you know, it should be yeah. health policy. You know, um, doctors should be making these policies, not cops. And But once you remove marijuana from the equation, and which is only a problem because it is illegal, I mean, I think everybody agrees that it's relatively benign and, you know, mostly not the, you know, the root cause of America's problems. Uh-huh. And I think the laws are softening now, right? I mean, um, obviously medical marijuana, which is rightly or wrongly seen as a stalking horse for legalizing marijuana, but it's less and less the priority of law enforcement. So I always felt once you took away busting kids for smoking dope, I mean, the people who have serious hard drug problems aren't that many. I mean, relative to this, you know, quote-unquote drug problem, you know, which is a lot of smoke and mirrors of what we've been, been presenting. Is that a point that you make in the movie, or is that something you've yeah, seen? Yeah, I mean, I think we're lucky this administration has a little bit better policy towards um, drug policy and they're well this administration is obviously stoned yeah yeah, yeah. they're trying (laughs) to look at it more as a public health approach but they're still not changing any of our policies or our laws which are really ingrained and there's a whole you know giant complex associated with them so it's really hard to do that but you know I I think starting with marijuana legalization and medical marijuana is a great step but I think you know we really need to as a society acknowledge that we have a drug problem instead of trying to lock everyone up you know mexico is a perfect example of you know our rampant desire for drugs leading to a completely corrupt violent state well prohibition doesn't work i mean we've learned that you think you know we would have you know, take, taken that lesson you know home home with us uh people want their drugs yeah and there's a prescription drug problem in this country it's not just the recreational drugs it's the drugs that are being peddled by you know people who have uh, you know the license to ill now, you know, I have a question. It's like Chris, you know, Chris Rock always says, yeah. right? It's they don't want you taking dr- drugs. They, want, they don't want you taking drugs that you know they don't make themselves. That, or that they're, they're not making money off of. Exactly. Is that true? In fact, that was my, exactly going to be my question. Like all of these 
hundreds of acres of pop farms in Northern California, Mendocino County. Who was making all that money, and is it government? I mean, what, have I you unpacked it's, that? It's not government yet. I I don't get too much into marijuana because I feel like that's an issue a lot of people talk about. Oh. Um, and She's I'm more person. I'm more focused on crack because nice. I think it's a oh, huge that's the best injustice. Drug ever. Well. <laughs> Um, when you look at what's happened to the African-American community as a result of that, not so much. I mean, they were first they were devastated by crack, the drug, and then they were devastated even more by the laws that came in to counteract that. You know, somebody, the, the original laws are 101 treatment for crack to powdered cocaine. So a nice, young, rich, white kid's snorting cocaine, and he has 500 grams, he's going to get the same amount of time as a black guy with 5 grams. That's starting to turn around now, though, too, right? It's starting to turn around. In New York State, it's turned around, right? Yeah, they just passed an 18-to-1 bill. So that's finally coming down, but... It, the impact I, of it has been huge. And I yeah. think people have to look at like why crack was a successful drug, which no one ever talks about. And the concept is you can now buy cocaine in two dollar increments. Yeah. Which is like a market it's marketing genius for that, you know, for, yeah, that's really, yeah, for that's that true. niche yeah, yeah, yeah. of the drug market. I mean, you know, I don't mean to be too flip about it, but yeah, when you can You're buy come back when you can buy when you could buy cocaine and you know in two dollars <laughs> and five dollar increments, um, you know, that's gonna that's gonna be a problem. Gomez Adams. You know, the Adams family, yeah. Morticia's uh, husband, husband, once said, what I need to do is find something that costs a dime to make, I can sell it for a dollar, and it's habit-forming. <laughs> that's that's, <crack>. that's <laughs> great. And that's yeah, right. Did he say that? Yeah. That is very funny. Well, yes. the, 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 the Gomezian worldview is the best worldview, really. <laughs> the wow. Adams family keeps on giving that. I that should way. watch some more Adams family. I haven't seen yeah. that for years. Really I think they were the only couple on a like, you know, TV sitcom, a uh, couple that really had sex regularly, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and interesting sex, obviously. Well, the Brady Bunch <laughs> was the first uh, family to sleep in the same bed. Like, that couple slept in the same bed. Bed uh, on television. I remember yeah, it was yeah, one yeah. of the first shows that did that. But, but they were Adams closed, took like, it up, up to their necks. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they slept in turtlenecks in the same bed. <laughs> and Greg Brady slept with the mother. She she was no more Tisha. She was no more. She was kind of hot. Florence, Florence Henderson. Florence Henderson versus Morticia. Yeah, that would oh, well, be hot. No, no, yeah, got uh, what's her name? Uh, Yvonne De Carlo. Was oh that, yeah, the monsters. Name? Oh, that's the monsters, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the deal? Who came first? Adam's Family? Well, Adam's Family came first as a cartoon strip by Shells Adams, but then what, The Monsters, a TV yeah. show? The Monsters, I think, the, was a love the show, well, but the I think well The Well of Knowledge you guys have. Stuff I don't so. even know about. Yeah, yeah but I mean, I, mean, I mean, Herman is no Gomez. I mean, no, no, Gomez you know, is cool. As, John I mean, Aston. I'm a John I mean, Aston, I mean just, just as a philosopher king. Herman was <laughs> in My Cousin Vinny. Remember? That was his last yeah. uh, great oh, role. That was great. Who? My cousin Vinny. Uh, oh, Fred Gwynn. Fred Gwynn. Who's amazing. Uh, yes. Yeah, his son, Evan, has a film in Anthologies Collection. <laughs> he called one day and said, I'm Evan Gwynn. You might know my father, Fred. Bring it all back home. Like, well, I wish I knew your father, Fred. Oh, then, well, Grandpa Al Lewis yeah. used to be in the West Village. Well, he ran He's for mayor. Al Lewis was, you know, a great uh, a proponent of legalizing marijuana. Yeah, I think well, he was Al, Al was How does it keep coming back to the Stonies? And Al was I completely um, lost. <laughs> but believe me, I have no desire to promote those stumble fucks at high times. But Al Lewis was was a great, great man. Yeah, I mean, you know, he ran on a legalized marijuana campaign. He was a Green yeah, Party yeah, yeah, candidate for yeah, uh, yeah. governor. Mayor. He was he was great friends with Al Goldstein, he lived who to I be worked very with. Old. Oh, oh yeah, he had a restaurant called Grandpa's for a very long time. And he was right always over out, by where Murray's is. That's right. He was always out on the street, you know, like like a carnival barker. Come on in, come on in. Did he ever he eat was at your wonderful. place? No, or they were scared of. Was he? Uh, scared uh, of we kids. had some beef. Yeah. Your dad hey guys, didn't quick like, uh, fact check. No, he was, I mean, 
it was okay. Just... We got to uh, jack our uh, executive producer hey quick. You can't hear this because you don't have it. What's the fact check? Fact check is that the Adams Family TV show precedes the Munsters by six days. Adams Family precedes the Munsters by six days. And on the seventh day, no God way. created her the Munster. Really? <laughs> Those wow. two things are virtually simultaneous. That doesn't usually, usually it's like a six month gap while somebody's ripping somebody off. That sounds like, like uh, what were those? Are those competing movies like Wyatt Earp? Two of them or came like, out. Or like a when year. Uh, the, uh, ER and like Chicago Hospital or whatever it oh, was came yeah. out at the same time. I mean, it's always like, uh, wow. where are the great, mo- the great monster sitcoms of today? Yeah, okay. what do we have? For our very elite vampires. VI. That's true. Oh, true. Yeah. Damn. It's all about vampires. Damn. Going back to gotcha. the core. <laughs> well, listen, we'll take a one minute break and then we'll come back for a final five minutes and then uh, we're going to talk with, uh, we're going to patch in to Steve Pope who does a weekly The heritage. Chicken Man. The Incredible Chicken Man. We're back here at the main course. It's been a groovy 90 minutes. Yeah, and um, I guess the factoid of the day was that the um, Adams Family preceded the Munsters' uh, network debut by six whole days, which lets us know what God did on the seventh day. Uh, we're sponsored today by White Oak Pastures. Once again, White Oak Pastures cattle are raised in a manner that has stood the test of time. These are really well cared for, comfortable, um, wonderful uh Cows with great temperaments and very delicious. Um, please visit them at whiteoakpastures.com. They, have great they do. Good. These are the kind of cows that a fellow would like to set up shop with. Have over for yeah. dinner, have for a cocktail. Take the kind of cow you could take home to mom. <laughs> then eat them out. <laughs> oh, okay. And with that, let's uh, wrap it up, Patrick. You, uh, I think you wanted to lead the uh, colloquium on pet peeves in New well, York City, I mean, which we started where we started the show. I would say, you know, the people basically have a responsibility to understand that they're part of a bigger nexus and they have to move things along at the pace that everyone else is moving. If they break that pace for whatever, you're technically interfering with the personal time you're of someone else. You're in my way. Else. That's right. Move at the speed, of, move at the speed of traffic. So yeah, move at the speed of traffic, whether you're walking, whether you're driving. Even a garbage truck could pull over. You know, people who break flow you know, are people who I, you know, I that's, get annoyed at. That's one of my first lessons moving to New York. P- polite here is different than polite anywhere else in the country. Polite here is like, 
knowing where you're going, staying on task, not stopping to make eye contact, smiles. That doesn't mean New Yorkers aren't friendly. Well, you my know? friend, uh, this guy who book I read called Irving Goffman, he called it civil inattention. Exactly. Which is exactly what I yep. want. I want everyone to be inattentive to me so I can be inattentive to them and get moved on my way. If they give attention to me and stop me, then all of a sudden I like either have to be their friend or fight with them. But New Yorkers I mean? are very friendly people, I, I find. I think it's a big please and thank you town. And I think it has to be because we're all piled on top of each other. My, you know, my, my ceiling is somebody else's floor, and every day jostling on the uh, four train. You know, we'd kill each other if yeah. we weren't polite to each other. Absolutely. You know, can you imagine? You know, the rest of the country sort of putting up what, with what we put up with. Yeah. You know, just to live in a small space, and you know, really scrapping for every bit that we get here. We have to be friendly and polite. What are your pet peeves, uh, New York City? Well, I don't have many. I grew up here and I love it, but I have to say the recent sort of infestation of um, mall stores, like and mall restaurants like the Olive Garden. Who comes to New York and goes to the Olive Garden? Or who Fri- in they just, New York? They just open on Fridays in New York. Yeah, who gets Domino's in New York? One of the um, things in New York is you should never have a bad piece of pizza. Uh, I mean, it costs I a lot to live here, and one of the perquisites is never having bad pizza. Mm. True. I, I, I mean, this maybe is not just New York. It probably speaks to the larger uh, place where America's at. Uh, in the internet age, but uh, I can't believe that I live in New York City and I can't find a good record CD store. Like, literally, Kim's is gone, Tower is gone. I We go to L.A. or San Francisco, and, I, you know, when I go use book or record shopping, I have to, like, ship home everything because I'm doing my shopping for an entire year, and I live in, the, like, the center of the universe, and I can't buy, uh, you know, what I want to... I mean, I can't shop. Yeah. It's really weird. That is weird. Monoculture, it sounds like, is annoying us. I, do, I just really have a hard time with the amount of napkins I get on a daily basis. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Such you, a waste. You, you buy a cup of coffee, oh. you pick up a bagel, wh- whatever it is that's like, you put the coffee in the cup with the lid in a bag with napkins and a straw, and I, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do with all that shit. I just, yeah, you know, I just need some caffeine. I was like, it and then you say, you say like, no, I don't want that, and they give you this look like maybe something's a little wrong with you. I hate, I hate the sleeve that they put on the coffee to protect you from the heat of the cup. Well, they don't want to get sued. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that McDonald's uh, uh, coffee in your lap lawsuit. Yeah. Or, or you're messing with their flow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Uh, Mr. I want a cup of coffee. I don't want to deforest Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> there should be a lane for tourists. Like, we have bike lanes. There should be a tourist lane, I yes, think. Yes, exactly. For the slow-moving, you know, I mean, people from Kansas City who've never seen, you know, a building that's more than three stories high. These people need their own lane. And I think they need a huge parking lot in New Jersey and an active ferry service <laughs> just to relieve people of having to drive, you and, know, through the, the city. city. Most people, I bet, would rather Isn't that what the... Um, the what's it called the transit between Jersey and I don't know yeah. I've never the path train are you learning how to talk to <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you what how about commercial traffic only in Manhattan commercial traffic only what, what's going on in New York where in Manhattan where where we have traffic <laughs> like problems so they're actually decreasing lanes and putting parking in the middle of Broadway yeah, and, and adding yeah, that's, that's adding like a bike lane that's awesome yeah. I, I think that's totally ridiculous no I, you drive I think a car that and I ride a bike the Department of Transportation is really onto something that's actually like increased flow through the city you know it's like smart it's not always like more isn't more 
Right. It's like you want to have smarter streets, smarter throughways, and well, your friend Calvin Trillin told me uh, recently. I saw him a couple of weeks ago, or you know, a month ago, said that he will only eat at restaurants that are on bike lane or that have connecting bike paths from his home. It's That's like a philosophy of his now. Yeah, he'll only go to uh, you know restaurants if he can uh, bike there. He's in Lucknow. A lot of new bike lanes in Especially New York. Especially where he I lives, mean, West Village. Yeah, everywhere. It's awesome. It's a little awkward, you know. You can't make a left, and you know, there's some weird things I have when you're a, driving. I have an issue with all the lights. I, you know, you walk by, you know, in Union Square and all these stores that are closed, and I'm like, why the fuck are your lights on? Oh like, who's, we're who's cursing in there? so much. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Even a gratuitously. No. Just oh, is that against the rules? Did I get? No, pet? we're the internet. <laughs> yeah, I was like, did I just get <laughs> But, uh, uh, but like all a, the lights, you know, why, why, why do you have your lights on? I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you hating on with uh, You know what made me insane was when the lights, the traffic lights, went from walk, don't walk, to the little green man. Um, oh, have you seen the Have you seen the five second countdown? Yeah, I've seen the five second countdown. <laughs> I know that allegedly, you know, we save a lot of energy with the new LED lights or whatever. But the walk, don't walk, was part of the character of New York. Yeah, that's what our signs were. You, know, you can't figure it out. Walk, it's green. Don't walk, it's red. Yeah, but so some German <laughs> tourist needs like a little man to tell them they can cross the street. <laughs> you know. I mean, seriously, and the, <laughs> the people in New York, anyway, don't look at the traffic signs. Yeah, they I mean, you could always tell cars. The, you could always tell the tourists in New York by the ones who are actually paying attention to this. I hate when people honk lights. at me when I'm jaywalking. That's my right. <laughs> 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 that is your right in this city. Well, this has been great. So, you know, of course, Katie is on vacation. Uh, we She's probably weed-whacking up in Rhode Island. So uh, we're going to be doing a couple of fun shows. I like these. These are like conversational shows. And uh, next week, we're going to pull together uh, another bevy of great guests. Absolutely. Absolutely, uh, cavalcade of stars. <coughs> cavalcade of stars, and um, are we going to do wrestling at all? We, well, we always wrestling is always a possibility on this show. If I we think, could get Jimmy Fly Snooker to I, like jump off the roof of the I, I think we might get studio. to do a punk rock and pastries next week. Ooh, punk rock Ooh. and pastries. So we've been sponsored by White Oak Pastures. We've had uh, Andrew Lampert, Melinda Shopson, Mike Edison, of course, my co-host, Aaron Fairbanks, and China Pacifico. Even uh, young Ann Saxoby made a point about uh, breaking flow sponsored we are engineered by nat and uh produced by jack erectech <laughs> well all right thanks patrick awesome and uh, cutting the curd coming up next interviewing sweet grass dairy Hi, this is Chef Steve, and we're going to be talking today a little bit about some some fun interviews that I've been doing, as well as a uh, beginning of fall, and we're starting to look at uh, some of the things that are coming up for fall, dinner-wise, and things that you can do. So let's talk a little bit about a, a process that I went through yesterday. I did an interview with a uh, 82-year-old wonderful woman. Her name was Frida Horn, and she's from Germany. And naturally, with my background in, in German cooking, I had a heyday talking with her. It was really great for her to validate a lot of the recipes that I've been using for some time uh, for the heritage birds, as well as her colorful history. It was just wonderful to listen to her talk about her past. 
One of the things that she talked about was the simple foods that were prepared through the German background. She she was uh, there during Hitler Hitler's regime, and she worked at one of the youth camps as a as a cook and learned a tremendous amount of cooking from from this uh, this camp advisor or or main person who ran the, the kitchen. One of the things that she talked about was you made do with what you had, and I think that that would ring true during the war periods and things of that nature. Everything was uh, a uh, commodity of, of uh, rationing, things of this nature. So uh, Frida talked a lot about you used what you had. One of the main staples that they had was was uh, more available to them was, was the chicken because it was easy to grow, it was out of the fields, and the maintenance was not as high with them. So there were quite a few different chicken recipes. Now, we're looking at the mid forties, early forties to mid forties when this was happening. So the the uh, the advent of commercialized chickens had not happened at that time. So naturally, they were using the old breeds that were indigenous to that part of the country. And uh, again, we talked at great length about the cooking techniques of those uh, particular uh, birds. <clears throat> One of the nice things about that was that she was able to say she learned her cooking with a handful of this and a pinch of that and. and and we managed to narrow down some of her recipes that uh, we could put actual weight factor to, such as a, a cup of flour or two cups of uh, this or that. And she was uh, very interesting to, to see her approach to cooking. Part of it was it had to feel right. And that was an interesting thought, that the, 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 the mixture or the ingredients had to feel right. And so when she mixed something, she mixed, mixed it by not only the ingredients that she knew she had to have, but did it feel right? Was it the right texture when she finished mixing it? Was it the uh, uh, the smell? Had the, had the herbs and spices blended together to the right uh, right aromas that she was trying to achieve? And she said that was a learned process. You just didn't just do it. And at the advent of our cooking today, we naturally go by simple recipe: uh, a half a teaspoon of this, two teaspoons of that. And I think that's what created that individualism to to each person's ability to uh, prepare a specific uh, recipe or prepare a specific bird. It had to feel right. And I, I'm fascinated by that because I know my mother used to take a handful of flour and a pinch of salt, and she created and gave her signature to her own recipe. And believe me, my mom was the only one that could take a frying pan and fry up fried chicken that would taste absolutely perfect. As far as I was concerned, there was no other way to cook it my mother's way and my grandmother's way. Weather's kind of cooling down a little bit. We were, we're looking at some rain, so it's a promise of fall that's going to be coming. A little early for us, but it's coming. And I, uh, one of the recipes we talked about was a simple uh, baked chicken that uh, Frida has that she uses more. It's almost like it's Italian. Of course, it uh, does not have the herbs and spices that the Italians use, but at this time of the year, there's a lot of tomatoes. There's a lot of different things that are coming out of the garden as, as gardens bountiful uh, produce happens at this time of the year. And she would take a, a chicken, cut it up, put it in a good roaster, covered up roaster with a little bit of water, uh, salt and pepper, and she would use a lot of chopped up tomatoes. Now the tomatoes just would add more moisture to the chicken as it cooked, 
and also impart uh, a tom- tomatoey flavor. As it cooked, it cooked down to some degree, and you ended up having a wonderful sauce. With that, she would make dumplings, and uh, some of the recipes that she has for dumplings are just phenomenal. Of course, in the German background, dumplings are to what Italians are to spaghetti or, or noodles, that type of thing. So one of the fun things was spending time with her, learning a little bit about this recipe. After you bake it, you bake it at 350 or lower, and again, with all heritage birds, you cook low and slow. That's most important. I can't impress you with enough of that. Take the time to let it produce what it's naturally going to produce for you. Once it's cooked, you add some of those dumplings in there, and you end up having a meal that cannot be beat. So keep in mind that there's a lot of those wonderful old recipes out there. You just have to rediscover them, and that's what Chef Steve does. He rediscovers the old recipes. Until next week, have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. But I don't have the nerve to leave